Trigger warning. This program contains discussions about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse as recounted by adult survivors from their childhood experiences. The purpose of this program is to promote healing among survivors of childhood sexual abuse, primarily with men. Some of these discussions, however, may trigger past trauma. This program also includes explicit language. Even if the mother is not the offender, if she's an enabler in any way, if she drops the ball in terms of protecting the child, then there's going to be some anger at the mother because the mother failed. You know, when abuse is introduced early in a child's life, um, it starts to shape their understanding of how they process information, especially around issues having to do with causality and responsibility and accountability. It confuses that. So were you able to tell somebody, did you feel enough entitlement, healthy entitlement to tell somebody that I'm being hurt, I'm being abused. And did those people take responsibility, i.e. the parents, in helping to protect you? Think of each day as an opportunity to push your recovery forward. Hi, I'm Craig. And I'm Lord. Welcome to our live program discussion focused on male survivors of childhood sexual abuse, sponsored by the men of Voices Beyond Assault. As most of us here today, Lord and I are also survivors. Voices Beyond Assault recently started a men's division because we understand that men's voices are not always heard, and we want to amplify their voices, empower them to heal, and provide resources that are needed. We're so glad all of you could join us today for this important discussion. At that, let me introduce our, first, our guest today, Dr. Patrick Gannon. Dr. Gannon is a clinical psychologist currently practicing in San Francisco and founder of ASCA, which is Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. Dr. Gannon is also the author of Soul Survivors, a new beginning for adults abuse as children, in which he first debuted his 21-step program for healing from the trauma resulting from childhood abuse. And slightly different today from other programs that we've had in the past, we will be exploring with Dr. Gannon the effects of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse on children, on both men and females, male and females. So Dr. Patrick Gannon, we're so honored to have you uh, with us today. Um, I, I really appreciate all the work you've been doing. Um, I, have, I have read your book, uh, which which was no small feat because <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty comprehensive. So uh, I really appreciate uh, you joining us today. I want to start out by asking you how did you know you you became a psychologist? How did you become a psychologist that spent really you spent your life working with survivors of childhood abuse? How did that come about? Well, um, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me to present today and I want to reach out to all the participants in this presentation. Um, appreciate your involvement and interest in this. Um, you know, I moved to California to go to graduate school um, in psychology. And uh, my first job after getting my doctorate was in the Tenderloin of South of Market um, in San Francisco. The Tenderloin is uh, uh, a challenging, even more so today, challenging neighborhood where a lot of uh, poor people, people that were uh, marginalized, uh, were coming in uh, and living there because of the low cost rents. And I was uh, 
involved in setting up a child and family outreach program, meaning that uh, the therapists would go out to schools, daycare centers, uh, satellite health clinics, uh, any number of facilities to reach out to the community and provide services for children and families. Uh, what we discovered was a high incidence of child abuse. And so we had to become involved with uh, child protective services in making uh, reports, uh, making sure that children were protected, in some cases uh, needed to be removed from the family because of their, uh, their being abused. And what I noticed in working with children, so I'm basically functioning as a child psychologist at that point, is that we always, when we're working with children, um, we always uh, include work with the families as well. And what I noticed in the families is that um, similar to what the children were presenting, the parents had a high incidence of childhood abuse themselves. And the curious thing I found was that in many cases, the issues that were happening in their family with their children uh, and the age of their children was very similar to the age of the parents when they were themselves abused. So I've just found that pretty interesting. So it, it established this link between childhood abuse and then eventually being in a family situation where some of that abuse was, was continuing. Now, I want to say that that's not always the case. Just because you were abused doesn't mean you become an offender. But we know that there's a higher uh, prevalence of uh, intergenerational child abuse. And so our goal was really to try to interrupt that intergenerational chain by intervening with the parents uh, so that they would provide the protection that perhaps they had never received themselves as children. And so what happened is that as a result of providing services also now for the parents, I noticed that there was a need for a self-help group. Um, there was a need for services for adult survivors. Now, you know, we're looking back at the late 80s. So a lot of this information was not out in the public sphere yet. You know, this is before Oprah Winfrey came out and uh, talked about the abuse and many other celebrities followed her. Um, the important thing here is that uh, we decided uh, in my work with, um, you know, the San Francisco child abuse community and eventually with the, the uh, Morris Center, we decided that we were going to provide services for the adults. And in particular, at that point, there were no services for male survivors. You might recall that back in the late 80s, uh, as child abuse was beginning to enter the national uh, consciousness, the focus was much more on female sexual abuse survivors. And there were a number of books that were published, uh, The Courage to Heal being prominent among them that really identified this, that was one segment of the abuse population that, you know, really started to get some traction in the public, building public awareness about sexual abuse, but it was focused mostly on female survivors. And what I noticed is that there were very few issues or very few services for male survivors. Now we know that the the incidence of abuse is much higher, physical abuse is much higher for males, sexual abuse is higher for females, however, in 1985, there was a big national survey done by the Los Angeles Times, and it found that 38% of all women had had either contact or non-contact sexual abuse during childhood. But 16% of all men had had contact or non-contact sexual abuse. So that was really surprising that sexual abuse was clearly also an issue uh, for male survivors. And now, of course, you know, years later, 
with the whole Catholic clergy abuse. We know that the vast majority of those victims uh, were male survivors, okay? And we also know that there are other domains where uh, boys were more vulnerable to being abused, such as, uh, you know, Boy Scouts and, and sports as well. So those domains were also causing, uh, you know, uh, child abuse or sexual abuse for males. So um, I began working to set up a group uh, for male survivors. And I put signs around town saying simply, men abused as children. Talked about the formation of a group for male survivors, not just sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse. And we include neglect in the category of emotional abuse. Um, and a curious thing started to happen. I started getting these calls from men around town saying, I saw your poster and I started having weird feelings. I started not understanding what was happening to me. I started getting upset and confused and, and I didn't know what to do. So I'm just calling you to say what's happening to me. And, and this kind of uh, revealed, remember this is in the, uh, in the uh, late eighties, early nineties. Uh, this is what we call a breakthrough crisis. It's where you first survivors have that first sensation of, our awareness really about what was done to them uh, as children. And they had no connection between how they were feeling as adults and how they, what they experienced as children. And this is the breakthrough crisis. And it basically creates this emotional upwelling of strong feelings, confusion, where the whole past kind of shifts. You start to kind of have an alternative view about what happened to you and things start, memories start coming back and feelings start coming back. It brings up the whole issue about, you know, repression of traumatic events in childhood, which we know does happen. Repression and dissociation pushes those memories down and it starts to break through. It starts to come up into consciousness and it creates a kind of a destabilization for people. They suddenly feel very kind of uncertain about themselves and dysregulated and they don't know what's going on. So we would bring these guys into our group and begin to lay out what was going on for them. And that really became uh, the source of my interest in this field because I'd done my dissertation on psychic trauma. Um, and, uh, you know, trauma has been... Uh, had a curious history in the field of psychology. You know, World War I, they called it shell shock. Mm -hmm. In World War II, they called it traumatic neurosis. So when I was doing my dissertation back in the 70s, that's what I was looking at. And I was looking at the effects of, you know, we used uh, the research models, used these uh, films to uh, create uh, an environment of a threat and then measured their threat and tried to understand what the response uh, looked like psychologically. So made this connection here and uh, wanted to kind of explore it further. And it began to evolve into what is now known as the ASCA program because I got involved in a, a local organization and uh, they were interested in creating a self-help group. And the question was, is like, okay, that's a big task. How do you, how do you create a self-help group? And uh, we took as a model AA, because AA at the time was where a lot of survivors were going to get self-help support. However, it wasn't quite fitting for them. You know, it was a place to go, but the issues between substance abuse recovery and recovery from child abuse were different. And, and in some ways the, the abuse issues were a lot more complicated. 
Uh, so we decided that we were going to develop a self-help group. So we used a model of AA and the STEP model, which is really effective because it really kind of shows very practically what people need to do to recover from substances. But we didn't want to rely on a spiritual recovery program. We wanted it to be a psychological recovery program because we thought that's what was needed in order for people to face what was done to them and then also to connect to the issues they were having as adults and then to identify a, a recovery program uh, where the people could engage in on, the, on their own, either using self-help resources or using professional help, psychologists such as myself. And so we developed this program and uh, put it out into the community and uh, had our first meeting at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School up on Parnassus. And we put uh, advertised the, uh, the meeting and uh, surprisingly over 100 people showed up. And it really told us that there was a real need for what we were offering. And that became, uh, that first meeting generated what we called a leadership group. And the leadership group were a group of survivors, including myself and the people at the Morris Center, which was sponsoring this effort, created a, uh, a group that was basically going to build this ASCA self-help recovery program. And that's what we did over several months. And then in, I believe it was uh, May of 1994, uh, we had our first official meeting with all the principles and the formats, heavily derived, obviously, from the 12 steps, because we, we knew it wanted to be a, a self-help group, and a non-professional group, but we wanted it to be, you know, driven uh, by survivors, for survivors. And we had our first meeting. And then from there, it just proliferated around the Bay Area. There were like six meetings for a while, and it extended in Cali uh, throughout California. So in 1999, when the Morris Center lost their funding, we made the tactical decision to put all of the me meeting materials online, make it available free of charge, and people could download the materials and start their own groups. We also provided training for the co-facilitators. And uh, over the last 30 years, because we started this in, in 1994, over the last 30 years or so, uh, ASCA has grown to be an international self-help uh, group, um, mostly in the United States, but, you know, groups have popped up in 12 different countries abroad, um, and uh, the Moore Center, uh, ASCASupport.org is the uh, website. The Moore Center has continued to support uh, these groups, completely uh, self-funded. We're not getting any uh, public grants or government grants. It's really supported by donations and such, but it's a very efficient program and uh, it's been wildly successful. There's, you know, probably thousands of people that have, uh, you know, participated in ASCA groups. So after some 30 years, we're very proud of where we've come. And uh, remember, it's a free resource uh, for many people who have limited means. They're not able to afford professional therapy, but there is a place to go and if you find uh, a local meeting at going to askasupport.org, you can find a, a meeting or, you know, you can start your own meeting. Um, and of course, you know, starting a meeting and working with the steps, um, undergoing your own, um, you know, recovery, uh, this can be a powerful uh, treatment strategy, you know, where you really are taking charge of your own recovery and you're providing service for others. So in the spirit of self-help groups, you know, you're reaching out to others, you're creating fellowship, People appreciate what you're doing. There's a, a sense of community. It reduces isolation. 
uh, and all the stigmatization that goes on with being an adult survivor. So we found it to be an incredibly effective program, especially when combined with professional therapy. Dr. Dana, that's amazing just to hear about how your work has evolved from just being interested in a single idea and it continually evolving and noticing all these other things along the path. And I think it's very, it speaks very much to how we solve problems. You know, you, you think it's this thing and then you're like, wait, there's another thing along the path and there's another thing and oh, this thing gets more specific. And I think this is a space that I can really enter into. And I think it's been neat to see how you've been able to hone in on a specific area and continue to develop a solution for that. You had touched on this a little bit, but I want to, can you take us back to kind of what are some of the major types of childhood abuse? And additionally, can you touch on what are the effects that each of those abuses have on children as they're growing up? You know, you had kind of mentioned a little bit of there's a repression of these feelings and there's just this breakthrough moment that things are coming up to the surface. And there's a lot of different responses people have to each of the abuses. And if you could just inform us a little bit to what that yeah. is. Yeah. So um, um, I, I think that it started with my um, more clinical assessment of what I was seeing with my clients who had been uh, physically, sexually, or emotionally abused or neglected. What I found was that early on, that the focus was, as I said earlier, on sexual abuse, in most cases uh, involving females. But what I noticed in doing my assessments is that most survivors have one or two or more of the different types of abuse in addition to the primary ones. So people might identify themselves as a sexual abuse survivor. But when you look at really what their experience was in their families, in many cases, they were also emotionally abused, terrorized or threatened, um, exploited, all sorts of emotional abuse issues also included. And in some cases, they were neglected, although there tends to be a constellation of abuse um, effects Sexual abuse and emotional abuse is very common. Physical abuse and emotional abuse, and then some neglect happens as well. Uh, so it's not just one issue. It's 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 really all four of them, including you know neglect. And so it's really important that each of those different types of of abuse has different types of effects on both the children and then of course uh, on the adults as they as they grow up. So I wanted to have a kind of a comprehensive overview of all the different aspects of abuse. And the more we dug into it, it was clear that people were seeing that there were other types of abuse that they had kind of overlooked for whatever reason. So again, my approach was to try to be very comprehensive and to uh, understand that there were different abuse constellations that all that also had to be recognized and become part of the overall treatment plan. And then what was your second question? Uh, the follow-up was, what, what effect do these things have on children as they become adults? Okay, okay. Um, one thing to consider is that there's a pretty important distinction between intrafamilial abuse, that's abuse that happens within the family, and extrafamiliar, where it's done by a teacher, a coach, a priest, someone outside, family friend, someone outside of the of the family. When it's within the family, it's a much more devastating issue because it interrupts the child's sense of safety in their relationship with their parents. Obviously, if the parent is abusing them in some way, it's going to create uh, a 
fear and uh, anger and confusion, and it's going to disrupt the normal bonding between the child and the parent. So it's going to disrupt a fundamental attachment relationship that's really critical to the early development of a strong personality. Uh, now, when the abuse happens really early and continues, it's even more devastating. So the age of the child when the, at the onset of the abuse is, is really essential. And if the abuse continues and if there's no safe place for the child to go to another person that they can go to within the family, then the child are really kind of adrift in this sea of, uh, you know, anger and hurt and confusion. Um, basically, they're under th constant threat, and we know what happens psychophysiologically when children are under threat. They start to their development shuts down. Uh, they start to develop uh, psychological defenses that inhibits their uh, development as as young people. Uh, all sorts of effects start to cascade throughout the psychology and the psyche of of the child, and you know everything is affected. Basically, you know their um, relationship to other people, their relationship to school, their ability to concentrate, how they feel about themselves. This is where the low self-esteem gets established. You know, children tend to internalize. When something bad happens with children, they tend to internalize it, that somehow they're responsible. And that, you know, is really the beginning of low self-esteem where you internalize it. And what's interesting is that you know, in the history of psychology, um, uh, Anna Freud, the daughter of Sigmund Freud, talked about a psychological defense that we see with uh, abuse survivors. She called it turning against the self. So when something negative happens, you rather than seeing it as something that's connected with the other parent, the child's more likely uh, perception is to internalize it, that they, they're responsible. And this is really one of the core is issues with adult survivors is that at some part and, and children survivors as well, they internalize the bad things that are happening that are somehow make them culpable. And it's real a fundamental issue that needs to be challenged. And one of the reasons why, and I'm going to be talking more about the individual steps, but the, the first stage of the recovery uh, points to the issue that you need to make a distinction between who is responsible for the abuse. It was not the child, the child's innocent. It was the parent who had the responsibility to, to be a good parent. And they're the ones that made the failure. They're the ones that are responsible. So, but that's a big issue, but it, it really turns on, it's essential that we turn that around because that's the fundamental core uh, of what how of how the children internalize the experience of being abused. They don't blame their parent. They keep their parents up on a pedestal because they need the parent. They want the parent to be good people, good parents. And so they turn it against themselves in a sense to protect the parent, but it does lasting damage to the self-esteem for the child. Well, that's uh, so. So those are two types. Uh, that's very interesting, having uh, interfamilia and and uh, people outside. What about the differences uh, and similarities that male and female uh, adults uh, suffer from as a sure. result of? Childhood? Yeah. Um, well, for the for the most part, 
um, the issues are, there are far more similarities than differences. And I think that in some ways we've kind of, you know, for whatever reason, um, in terms of how the child abuse awareness developed in our society, um, you know, there were these firmer distinctions between the effects on females and the effects on males. So I really think that there are far more similarities. Um, for males, the loss of the male potency and power are critical. You know, males are socialized to, you know, be in charge, be in control. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of privilege that we're, we're hearing now about in our society, about male, male privilege. And so, you know, when they're being abused, uh, whether physically, sexually, emotionally, or neglected, that really causes uh, big issues for men, the loss of power, and then how they react to the loss of power. And in some cases, especially if they're being physically abused, they're more likely to react with anger and, uh, you know, delinquency and ev eventually even criminality. I mean, a lot of it depends on how they deal with this loss of potency. Do they use anger, you know, as a defense and then become problematic with all the behaviors that are tied to expression of anger? Now, if they're being sexually abused, it's complicated because if they're being sexually abused by uh, another male, it brings up this whole issue of what we might call homosexual panic. It's like, you know, what's what? Why was this person, this male, coming on to me for sexual reasons? Does this mean that you know I'm gay and so? So obviously, some some kids, you know, are in the beginning sense that they might be gay, but for a lot of people that are more heterosexual, uh, they are confused by why males. A, a male offender might come on to them. And so it really affects their sense of sexuality, their their identity, um, confusion about are they straight or are they gay? Um, and then of course, if it's uh, if they're being abused by a a female, in particular, if they're being abused by their mother, and you know one of the uh, the people that I follow in Soul Survivors, uh, Pete, uh, was sexually abused by his mother. Um, and that really becomes con uh, conflictual for obvious reasons. You know, you you expect motherhood to be innocent and, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, supportive. And uh, when sex becomes part of that relationship, you can see how that would create incredible inner turmoil and conflict. Um, so that, of course, is going to affect uh, the, the foundational issues of attachment, you know, Personality development is really built around attachment and the quality of the interpersonal attachment to the uh, the caring uh, adult, whether it's the mom or the dad, and it completely wrecks that whole attachment process. If if one one of the sections I'll never uh, it's just stuck in my head the uh, where Pete uh, was coming out of the driveway and his father got out to close the garage door and his mother turned to him and said. Um, you know, did, did we have intercourse? I missed my period, just matter-of-factly. It just blew my mind. Yeah, but, yeah, you can imagine. Well, in that case, of course, the mother was also an alcoholic, and so some of these uh, sexual uh, episodes, I think, occurred when she was in a blackout or compromised by alcohol, and so her memory was being affected. But I agree with you. The casualness with which she she brought up, you know, up, you know, her her missing her period to her son you can imagine how devastating uh that was uh for for pete um so you know we also know that 
with boys having higher rates of physical abuse, there's much more of an issue around anger and uh, anger management problems and violence. And of course, that can lead to criminality and everything. So obviously, it's uh, that's a big issue. You know, the research done uh, with uh, male prisoners, for example, they have sky high rates of physical abuse in their background, physical abuse and neglect in many cases, you know. So neglect is an interesting type of abuse. I don't want to go into it too much, but the point is that when there is neglect in the family, and then when it's combined with some other negative, like sexual abuse or, or physical abuse, um, the, the, kill, the kids don't get anything, really. They're not getting anything that would help their normal, healthy development. There's like an abyss. The neglect is like nothing. And then you add a, just a negative. And if the kids don't have any other responsible uh, adult resources around them, you can imagine how adrift they are in terms of who they are and how this what might affect their their functioning overall. Um, so um, on the female side, um, I think what we're seeing, the rates are pretty clear that a much higher uh, rate of sexual abuse, uh, but again, other types of abuse, emotional abuse and neglect can be included there. Um, I think that for uh, for women, it kind of um, kind of uh, reinforces the female sense that they are exploitable and have no power. So the way that females are socialized is that you know who is it? S Simone de Beauvoir said called it the second sex. They have less power in our society because let's face it, it's more of a patriarchy. There's male dominance here. Um, and it reinforces that idea that they are only good for giving up their bodies for the purpose of male sexuality. So it reinforces some of the negative things that are in our culture. And, and it, it, it makes women feel like that's all they're good for is, you know, what they can uh, do with their bodies to satisfy men. So, you know. Could that also uh, apply to men who were sexually abused as yeah, well? Yeah, it's not, you know. All of these issues, it's not either or. There's kind of like, you know, tendencies that tilt toward one direction or another. So, so both things are, are true. Um, it also kind of like for women, female survivors, there's little support for the females to express their anger. You know, men are more, more allowed, they have more license to express their anger. That can lead to other problems. But for women, they have to basically stuff it. They have to like hold the secret you know, throughout their life. And we've heard this, you know, it keeps happening where, you know, it's clear that uh, women, when they're being exploited, either as children or adults, uh, they don't feel a lot of support for expressing themselves or, you know, having recourse that will allow them to rectify what was done to them. So um, the other issue for females is that child sexual abuse, depending on when it's when the index episode occurs, the index episode is the first episode that occurred. If it happens really early, it can start to trigger psychophysiological changes. Girls will actually have their period earlier when they've been sexually abused as children. So it actually stimulates something hormonally in the, in the female child that causes them literally to change their physical development. And they might mature at the age of 10 and then I've heard this over and over again from my female survivors that um, that somehow or other their experience of sexual abuse gets uh, transmitted or projected 
people start to kind of react to them as sexual creatures and then people start to come on to them and you know, it makes them more and more uncomfortable or if they they grow breasts you know at the age of 10 or 11 you know the boys are starting to notice it and then they're being treated like a sexual object so it reinforces a lot of the negatives that are uh, that women face in our society today because of their uh, you know, having less power. Mm. Yeah, that is, there's a lot of great information there. I think it's so interesting to see that a lot of the experience is more of a spectrum and can slide to the left, to the right. There's shared experiences. There are some that are more common on, you know, a male side of things, or things that are more common on the female. Um, but that is really fascinating. And I want to ask, uh, you know, as people who go through childhood abuse, it, you know, what are the, I guess, can they live a normal productive life without going through some type of healing process? Or is it just like, no, you absolutely, you have to go through healing and it has to be a process for you? Well, it's a really good question. And again, it's, uh, the answer is somewhat nuanced. Um, a lot of it depends on um, the severity of the abuse, uh, the timing of the abuse, how long the abuse was going on, if they had any other relationships that could counteract the negative effects of the abuse. So when things are later, when the abuse comes later and it's more circumscribed or limited in time or duration, and if the child or the adolescent has other supports, um, they can minimize the damage. So basically, psychologically, the mind will kind of encapsulate the abuse kind of effects. Um, and they can kind of like live outside of those abuse effects. They can go on and have a productive life. But the problem is that if you're carrying around these unresolved feelings and memories, you're going to bump into them during the course of your life. You know, in different situations are going to evoke them. And, uh, you know, uh, you can kind of manage, but eventually it has to be dealt with. So if you want to be completely recovered, I think you have to do the work, the amount of work and uh, the focus that's required depends on how severe the abuse was and the way it was the way it affected you. Um, so that has to be taken into account um, when it's early, when it's severe, when it goes on for a long duration, when you have no other resources, then people really, if they want to have a functional life, they have to do they have to do the recovery process. They just have to make a commitment. And, you know, stage one of the ASCA three-stage 21-step program is called remembering for a reason. It's that you have to take control of what happened to you. You have to determine what happened to you, um, how did it affect you, um, how do you recover from it. But it starts with taking charge by seeing and, and identifying what was done, like what what was the effect? How did it affect you? You have to own the facts. It's really kind of a, a fundamental issue because if you don't, if you don't, if you're not able to determine if you were abused or not, that has to happen first before you can make a, a commitment to recover from the abuse. So you got to get the facts. It's like a foundational issue. Was I abused or not? If so, what types of abuse? How did it affect me? What do I need to do? You're responsible for your own recovery. You're not responsible for the abuse occurring to you. But you need to be able to um, not be scared by your uh, your memories and the feelings tied to those memories. You have to 
um, to make a commitment to deal with those memories or else you're going to be kind of relying on psychological defenses to keep them at bay. So we don't want there to be an internal struggle about pushing down these memories and pushing down these feelings yeah. for to your life. We want these to emerge, see what they say, see what they're about, and then work them through uh, through psychological uh, and recovery efforts. So you need to kind of recognize that there's going to be inevitably feelings tied to the abuse, and you have to accept those feelings, shame and anger, um, sadness, disappointment, confusion, this range of feelings. You can't keep pushing them down. And if you try to do that and live around these feelings and never deal with them, uh, they're going to pop up periodically. And I'll tell you where they really pop up is when you as an adult, when you enter an intimate relationship with another person, those issues are going to kind of be in your face because, you know, that's what's going to come up. You're going to have all sorts of reactions to the demands for intimacy from your partner. And then it also comes up when you have children. And that's what I found, you know, way back in the 70s when I was working in community mental health in San Francisco is that, well, you know, these uh, parents that have been abused, they have kids and and, you know, the kids start having issues as well for, a, you know, a, a variety of reasons. So the first stage is remembering mm -hmm. coming to grips with what happened. And so if you don't do that, it's going to be you're going to have a very bumpy life. Yeah. So it's like you're describing me because the um, I went for 40 years thinking that I was like living this great normal life. I had I had pushed it away. What happened to me? I knew something happened. I didn't deal with it. I didn't even label it as as uh, childhood sexual abuse. And um, but so, but I didn't realize that uh, until later, after I got therapy and was was looking and, and examining the effects, all the effects that it had on on me, my spouse, and and, and everybody around me, and including like moving miles away to get away from things didn't didn't put all that together so i guess how how does somebody get to that point though if they're just in that mindset of hey i'm i'm great everything's great they don't they don't realize that they're having these effects how do they get started in the first place to have that breakthrough that yeah something happened to you yeah if something happened to you this is this is this is why these things are happening at some point, uh, you need to face the reality of what happened. And, you know, unlike, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there wasn't a lot of information in our society about this. Now there is, you know, uh, it's certainly uh, in the media, people talking about their childhood experiences, athletes and celebrities are. So there's a lot more opportunity to, to when you run into someone telling their story, you think, boy, did that happen to me? You know, you know, you can have an awareness, but then you have to make a choice to face it and to figure out, make sense of it and figure out, well, what are you going to do about it? And this is really, you know, one of the steps in the first stage is you have to make a commitment to engage with it and work with it and to try to recover from it. And so there are a lot of people that know that they've got this stuff in their past, but they don't want to deal with it. Typically, they don't want to deal with it because they're afraid of the intensity of the feelings. That's really one of the core reasons why they avoid dealing with it. They're afraid of the intensity of the feelings. They don't, they don't understand that these feelings can be managed. 
Um, they're not going to, uh, you know, make you go crazy or anything. In fact, you know, it's going to lead to a much higher level of mental health if you can kind of let some of these feelings out and understand what they're telling you. Feelings are simply, you know, uh, messages from your your unconscious mind that there's something that has to be attended to. You know, a feeling of sadness says you're sad about something. A feeling of anger says you're angry about something. You know, so you have to kind of recognize it and then take responsibility for it. And there's a lot more support for doing that, you know, today because there's so much more information. I mean, I just wish I would have found your book uh, in in 1989 when it first came out. I just had no idea. I mean, we didn't even have really the Internet then to to go and find these these resources or even realize that this was this had happened to other people at the time so i agree with you it's it's much better now yeah yeah and you know what i thought i i would like mention some of the issues I, i'm not sure if that would came up before but some of the issues faced by survivors both male and female i just want to kind of go over that because i think it's so critical uh you know the relationship issues are probably at the top of the list people untreated um survivors who have not finished recovery will have significant relationship issues if they have a relationship at all, okay? So relationship issues, and I can talk more about that in depth in a little bit. That's the first one. The second issue is low self-esteem, feeling bad about yourself, um, feeling there's something wrong with you. And of course, shame is a sense of being defective, right? Um, Self-sabotage in terms of behavior, uh, you know, doing things, making decisions that don't benefit you or not in your your healthy psychological interests. Um, sexual problems, of course, in the area of sexual abuse. So when when the person's been sexually abused, you're going to have a variety of sexual problems. Either abstinence tends to go in one direction or the other. You know, abstinence where they're totally uncomfortable with any sex, or over promiscuity. You know, we know that what, 73% of uh, of escorts and sex workers and prostitutes have been sexually abused. Uh, also, number five would be symptoms of trauma, just being kind of hypervigilant or numbing uh, of the body, um, you know, uh, strong feelings that kind of erupt uh, for when triggered by uh, circumstances that mimic the abuse episode. Physical ailments, especially with women, uh, female survivors, because of what was being done to their bodies, will have a higher incidence of physical ailments, psychosomatic problems. You know, there's a connection between the mind and the body. And uh, of course, you know, sexual abuse is going to affect the mind and the body. So no surprise, the higher incidence of physical ailment uh, ailments. Also, what's called social alienation, a sense of not feeling safe around people. And, you know, this is clear uh, in all kinds of trauma. You know, soldiers that came back from Iraq that I've worked with, um, they have fear of other people because other people were threats when they were back in Iraq, including children that were carrying weapons or bombs and stuff. They're basically afraid of people because of what people have done to them. You know, at, at its core, child abuse is an interpersonal crime. It happens between two people. And so that affects their sense of comfort and safety and, and calmness around how to deal in with other people. 
Um, and then just in a general way, just difficulty handling feelings, okay? Um, you know, these strong, intense feelings that make people think that they're going to become overwhelmed or it's going to make them go crazy. Yes, there's strong, intense feelings because child abuse creates strong, intense feelings. And they, if they're not treated, they stay in the psyche as strong, intense feelings. And then people start to be afraid of them. They start to use the psychological defense of, uh, you know, uh, avoidance, or sometimes they will externalize it onto other people through anger, all sorts of different unhealthy ways of dealing with the intensity of the feeling. So, so those are some of the common problems that male and female survivors present. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah. Um... I wanted to circle back just a little bit and talk to you about how you're coming up with this 21 step program. I know that you had come up with the first step as remembering and being able to bring those memories back to light, being able to contend with them, trying to just admit to yourself what had happened. And so how did you come up with that program and how did that first step come about? You know, was it a moment of epiphany where you're just like, oh, this is what I've been looking for this entire time? Well, the, the yeah, in stage one, there's three stages. Uh, stage one is remembering. Stage two is mourning mourning the, the loss of the good parent. And then uh, the third step is healing. So the first step, I am in a breakthrough crisis, having gained some sense of my abuse, really came from that experience that I described earlier when I put the sign up around town when I was trying to uh, uh, fill the, the uh, group for male survivors of abuse. It, it told me that People were going through a breakthrough crisis because this information wasn't out there in the in the uh, in society yet. So that was, you know, that was a direct experience from, uh, you know, when I started doing the group. Um, but, you know, because I'm a, a clinician, because I did research on um, trauma for my dissertation, um, I had a good sense of where this uh, the current psychological knowledge was about trauma um, and recovery. Um, a key book came out early on in my career um, was a book by Judith Herman, who's still alive, called Trauma and Recovery. And she was the first one to talk about complex post-traumatic stress. And that's really what I was dealing with. And I knew that. And as a result of reading that book and, and being guided by her research and her conceptualization, I knew that um, I really wanted to build a comprehensive psychological recovery program. And, you know, just doing the research, knowing what other researchers and, and practitioners in the field were doing, I kind of cobbled together this program. Originally, I had 36 steps. And when I talked to my publisher about this, they said, mm -hmm. oh, you can't do 36 steps. That's too many steps. I said, well, you know, it's a lot more complicated than... Um, than, than uh, you know, AA and, and recovery from alcoholism. Um, so you said, well, you know, why don't you think about coming up with a 12-step program? And I said, you know, we're going to get confused with AA if we come up with 12 steps. I said, and 12 steps don't represent all the different changes that people need to make. So basically, we, we kind of compromise on 21 steps. And she said, you've got you've to create, uh, you know, a step program that will be comprehensive enough, but organized and, and manageable for people to kind of understand because people are used to 12 steps. Now you've got 21 steps. And I said, well, look, 
how about we do a three-stage program, which is what a lot of treatment programs are involved with, three stages, seven steps for each uh, step. So I just went through all of the different, based on the research, all of the different effects um, that people have in stage one in terms of coming, what do they deem to do in order to set themselves up to undertake recovery? And these are the steps, you know, like determining that they were they were abused, making a commitment, um, being able to uh, manage the memories and the feelings that come up. You have to be able to deal with the reality of accepting that you were abused, and that's going to involve dealing with feelings. And then the core issue, as I said before, accept that the child was powerless over the the abuser's actions, and that holds the parents responsible. That's a a key cognitive reframe that must occur where you, the child that might have thought that somehow they're responsible, no, the parent's responsible, but the child or the adult survivor needs to be responsible for the recovery. That's your job is to recover. And then you have to kind of uh, move into a place of acceptance. It's like, you know, this is horrible that this has happened to you, but it had, it caused certain consequences that you need to face in particular shame and anger and all these feelings and you need to not blame yourself or turn it against yourself or turn it against others you can't become an offender as well we know that you know probably about 20 percent of, of abuse survivors start to engage in some kind of abusive behavior themselves and so that's going to be harmful to themselves and to others and then there's this sense that despite what happened to you as children, you have to reach that place where you have, uh, and I call, this is what we call soul survivors, is that there's a kind of a, a kind of a, a spiritual place, a cosmic place about um, your inner child and respecting the soul of the inner child um, to survive and to support and appreciate. You've got to get down to your essence and say, okay, I'm going to respect my essence here. These bad things happen to me, but there's a part of me that is striving to be healthy, striving to have a good life, striving to break the intergenerational uh, chain of child abuse. You've got to reach that inner part. We used to call that back in the 80s with uh, Charles Whitfield. They called it the inner child. It's great. It's a great concept. There's a part of you that survived the abuse. You've got to reach that and hold on to that right and all the rights that come with the fact that you have a right to follow through and have a healthy life. So those are the key steps in setting up the recovery. The other steps are really the psychological recovery steps of any kind of trauma, you know, whether it's episodic trauma or whether it's relational trauma. Now we talk about type one trauma being episodic trauma. That's bad things that happen that have a beginning, middle and an end, such as an abuse episode. Uh, or, you know, being beaten by a, a parent. Type two trauma is the ongoing relationship trauma, which is more of what we call emotional abuse, you know, being criticized, being blamed, being disparaged, being unfairly compared to somebody else, being terrorized, being exploited, um, being threatened, all of those emotional things. Um, so these things uh, in stage two, the morning is that and we borrowed some of this from AA, is that people needed to take stock. They need to take an inventory. And so step number eight, I've made an inventory of the problem areas of my adult life. You've got to say, okay, you know, bad shit happened to me. What, what are the effects? I need to kind of organize it because that's going to be 
where I, I make my recovery efforts focused on, okay? And then identifying parts of themselves connected to self-sabotage that need to, to stop hurting themselves, which is that internalization, that turning against the self that I talked about earlier. They need to turn that around as quickly as possible because we don't want them creating new problems for themselves. So stopping dysfunctional behavior as soon as possible, identifying it, stopping it, and then turning to building your skill set. So they need to be able to control their anger and find healthy outlets for their aggression because if they're physically abused, they're going to be angry about it. They're going to be, you know, it's going to come out in some aggressive way and they need to stop that as well. And then also the cognitive beliefs. What did you what do you believe about yourself? Your beliefs, your attitudes, you know, your observations, your perceptions, how you experience the world has been affected by the abuse. So you need to be able to identify faulty beliefs and distorted perceptions about yourself and others on an everyday basis. That has to be turned around. Um, and then, of course, dealing with the issue of shame. Shame is a big part of, of how survivors have reacted um, and developing self-compassion, flipping that shame into self-compassion, like recognizing that you're put in a really difficult situation during childhood and these bad things have affected you, but you've got to be on your side. You've got to have compassion and not blame yourself. And then you have a right to be who you want to be. Okay. You have a right to kind of uh, live the way you want to live. You have these rights that have been obscured by the abuse. You need to be able to kind of say, hey, I have a right to live. I have a right to pursue uh, a healthy, satisfying life. Um, I need to kind of give myself that. And then you also need to be able to grieve the childhood and mourn the loss of those who failed you. You need to basically, you know, recognize that there's tremendous amount of sadness and disappointment when the parents fail you or when somebody outside the family you know takes advantage of you there's a certain amount of sadness and, and grieving that has to go on especially if it, it involves the parent as the offender especially even more so if it's the mother it's one thing and i i know this is somewhat controversial what i'm about to say but you know mothers are really in most cases the primary parent provider in our family, the way our family operates here in, in Western society. And so when mothers fail the child, it's even more devastating. And if if the father, if the father is the abuser, but the mother is either neutral or supportive, uh, the long-term effects are mitigated. But when the mother is the abuser, it really cuts into what the child really needs because the child is programmed to need the mother in some ways. I mean, fathers can step in when the mothers are deficient. There's no doubt about it. But mothers really have a special place in our society and in the development of the young child. And then the third stage, the third stage is really about um, making changes in the adult life. Um, you know, um, having the initiative to make these changes and recognizing that it's something that you have to do in order to be a functional adult. We want to build functionality. We want people to be able to kind of, you know, pursue their interests in the in the world. Um, and that requires that you strengthen the healthy aspects of yourself and to build your self-esteem. One of the interesting things uh, that we found with self-esteem is that when people take on a challenge and they're able to 
meet that challenge. That's what builds self-esteem. So building functionality in your behavior, being more effective and successful in the world, that's what builds self-esteem. It's nice to have words of support, you know, you know, affirmations and all of that. But the research says that the way you build self-esteem is to function better in the world and recognize your achievements. So you also need to make certain changes in relationships at home and at work. The ability to make necessary changes in how you parent, how you are in a loving relationship, how you operate at work with your friends, that really provides a lot of opportunity to build self-esteem. And then finally, the last few steps of stage three is really about, you know, coming to some understanding about, you know, what it meant that you were abused by the parents that you had. You have to kind of some, come, come to some kind of meaning about the abuse. And by organizing a, mean, a meaning about the abuse, it allows you to begin to kind of put it behind you. You know, it doesn't make sense for people that have gone through recovery to continue to identify themselves uh, as survivors throughout their life. You want to recognize that you experience something and you internalize something, but that doesn't have to be your identity. That doesn't have to define who you are as a person. You can go beyond that. You can become a thriver. You can put this behind you once and for all, but it takes a lot of work. And a lot of the work has to do with making the changes in how you operate as an adult. So you want to ultimately see yourself as a thriver in all aspects mm -hmm. of life. And this goes back to Freud's talk about, well, what is psychological health? The ability to love, the ability to work effectively, to parent in a healthy way, and to play. The ability to play is a restorative function. So love, work, parenting, and play. If you're successful, in those four domains, you've arrived. Your recovery is complete. So it's really important that this be seen yeah. as a wide-ranging effort throughout the lifespan. And it may take years for people to get to that stage, number 20. Um, but it's possible, but you have to make a commitment to yourself. I want to step back a, a little bit, and, and those are amazing steps. And I want to go into some of them in a little more detail. But in uh, we have Mother's Day coming up, which can be a trigger for people. And last month, I uh, we had on this program Wade Robson, uh, who was a, a victim of uh, Michael Jackson's uh, abuse, but who's who had a very strong, um, you know, anger toward his mother because she allowed she she he saw her as allowing this to happen by allowing him to stay overnight there. We have some of our our participants. Uh, today who are, are writing in that they too either experienced abuse by their mothers or they felt that uh, they their mother didn't protect them they didn't they weren't there to be their protector um, and I think that that's probably common you know as as uh, a lot of mothers would say it always falls back to the mother but it, it's a very complicated relationship because above all we see our mothers as being the ones that that should protect us um, how do we get past that? Uh, how do we how do we get past that feeling uh, with our mothers um, and and not have Mother's Day be a trigger and maybe even have a relationship with our mothers in, in if if they were the abuser or not the abuser? I don't know if it's even possible if they were the abuser to have a relationship. But how do we deal with that? 
That's a complicated issue. Um, you know, one of the things that I do in the book is that the uh, Pete, um, the male survivor of sexual abuse with his mother, we included a series of letters between he and his mother and his attempt to come to grips with what happened because he um, wanted to uh, hold her accountable for what she did. And um, it began the series of back and forth letters that ultimately uh, showed his his eventual progress to a sense of acceptance and, and perhaps even forgiveness uh, of, of the mother. But what you're bringing up, Craig, is really a critical issue. Even if the mother is not the offender, if she's an enabler in any way, if she drops the ball in terms of protecting the child, then there's going to be some anger at the mother because the mother failed. You know, we have to, as, you know, as parents, whether you're mother or father, we are responsible for protecting our children and not letting things bad things happen to them, certainly within the domain of our family. So if the mother is compromised in her ability to protect the child, there's going to be anger. So here we get to, there's a chapter in the book about confronting your abuser. And uh, for some survivors, uh, they may be motivated to go back to the mother um, and say, look, we've got to talk about this. We've got to talk about what happened uh, here. And, uh, you know, this is how it affected me. And this is what you did. And this is how you failed to protect me. And hopefully the mother, depending on, you know, if she's um, capable or sober or re responsible or has evolved, uh, you know, to take responsibility for her abusive or enabling behavior, she will own it. And, you know, it makes a big difference for a lot of survivors for the parent to say, look, you know, I blew it. I messed up. I didn't uh, provide the protection that you needed, and I'm sorry. And if the the adult child and the parent can go through that process of, you know, seeing what happened, take parent taking responsibility for what they did, <clears throat> you know, and sharing, be, having the parent hear the effect that it had on the child is open to accepting the child's point of view, is not discrediting it or challenging it, um, then the, a healing process can occur. In cases where the parent is either unavailable or shut down or in denial or defensive. Or if they're deceased even. Or deceased, yeah. You know, basically you miss the opportunity to have a healing process with the abusive parent or the enabling parent. And so, you know, things are a little more difficult. You've just got to live with it. But if the parent's alive, if the parent's open to it, you know, you can look at the uh, the chapter in my book. It has to be very carefully considered if you're going to talk, you know, or confront the parent with what they did. It has to be done in a safe way. There has to be a certain amount of planning. Um, and you have to accept any outcome, because if you reach out to a parent that isn't ready to take responsibility for what they did, and they deny it or they blame the, the victim, it's going to be a bad experience, and it probably would be better not to undertake that process at all if it's going to have a negative outcome. So you've got to be prepared. If you're going to go down in this direction, you've got to be prepared uh, for any outcome in order to not feel like it's another abuse to, you know, there's always that risk that it's going to reenact the sense of loss of power and stuff. All right, Dr. Dana, we have a question in the chat and we have one that is saying, what is the best way to work through the ASCA program when the realization and acknowledgement of child abuse comes very late in life? 
Well, you know, one thing you can do is you can, um, you know, find a, if there's a local ASCA meeting in your community, um, they also now the ASCA program through the ASCAsupport.org website, we have virtual ASCA meetings now um, every Saturday morning, um, and it's run by experienced co-facilitators. Uh, you do have to apply to get into the group. It's a closed group in order for it to maintain safety. Um, so, you know, anywhere in the world, people can tap into the, the virtual meetings if they are not living in a community where there happens to be an ASCA meeting. Also, you can go and, and find a therapist that is trained in, in trauma and trauma recovery um, in your local community. Um, uh, you know, or eventually, if you get enough recovery under your belt, you can start your own ASCA meeting and do what we did, you know, 32 years ago in San Francisco. You put posters around town, or now, of course, you post it on the internet. And you invite people to come to an on-ground meeting space at a local church or a community center, you know, and you uh, you get a room donated and basically you start your own ask a group in your community. And I tell you, we hear stories all the time where people, it was the main part of their recovery to start an ask a group and to get, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 uh, people together on a weekly basis, uh, going through the steps, going through the ask a uh, recovery process, the group process. It's very safe. It's uh, anonymous. And um, for a lot of people, that's been the backbone of their recovery effort is basically turning around and providing service, uh, self-help service to, to the community. So that would be one strategy I'd recommend. Are, are most of the ASCA trainers um, that you train, are they survivors themselves? Everybody in the ASCA program uh, are survivors that are going to run a meeting. Yeah. Different again. Again, you're going to get different abuse constellations. Not they're not all going to be sexual abuse or physical abuse survivors, but one of the, they're going to have one or more of the four uh, types of abuse. So when I think of these steps, I think of of 21 steps. Do you have to take them? Do you have to do, go through the steps sequentially or in these meetings? Because if you jump jump into a meeting and they're on step 12, are you going to be lost and have to go back to step one, or, or how, how do they work? There are different types of meetings. There are step meetings where, you know, you might focus on later steps. I think it's really important that um, most of the meetings seem to be focused primarily, I think, on um, stage one recovery issues, because that's the entry point into the ASCA program is taking, you know, going to a meeting and kind of talking about what happened to you and how it affected you and making your commitment. That's your first step. But, you know, there's a different types of meetings and, uh, you know, it's really inspiring for a lot of people new to the program to hear that there are other people that have been going to ask it for a while and they're a lot farther along in recovery because they've been doing the work, you know, and it provides some direction and, and uh, you know, kind of incentive to, to continue to come back to the meetings and, and begin your own process of recovery. Awesome. Very nice. Um, I think it's so great to hear that, you know, for a lot of people, there are a lot of resources that they can turn to that ASCA is not, you know, it doesn't matter how late in life you start to realize, oh, I need healing. You know, it is a process that anyone can go through regardless of where they are currently at. And I think that's a very helpful message to have because there are people who are much younger starting their healing journeys. There are people who are older starting their healing journeys. And I think it can be very easy to look back and be like, oh, if only I had done that when I was, only I had done that back then. The realization is you can start where you're at 
and from there it can be great from there moving on um so i really appreciate you just being able to put that into words um i want to kind of talk through a little bit some of the steps that you had laid out because i think they're so fascinating you know in, in steps 12 like you had kind of briefly mentioned it says i can challenge faulty beliefs and distorted perceptions adopt more healthy attitudes and expectations about myself and i know we had briefly touched on this you said children will internalize these issues and they'll say the abuse that i suffered was my own fault but could you kind of expand on the, some of those other common faulty beliefs, because I'm sure that there are some of us in this audience who hold these beliefs to be true to ourselves when really they are not ours to be. Um, so could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that um, when when abuse is introduced early in a child's life, um, it starts to shape their understanding of how they process information, especially around issues having to do with causality and responsibility mm -hmm. and accountability. It confuses that. So when you think about the issues that adults have, adult survivors, they're working, they're interacting with other people, you know, they have all the challenges of life that everybody else does. If you have distorted perceptions, if you kind of take information and you don't kind of um, develop a kind of a, a valid kind of reasonable reality-based understanding uh, of what it means, then you're going to continue to kind of do the same cognitive distortions that you had to make as a child, you know, in order to, uh, you know, protect the, the ideal of the parent uh, by internalized negativity. So if you have an internalized low self-esteem and negativity about your value in the world, when you're in a work situation, let's say, for example, um, there's some kind of interpersonal issue. Um, if you kind of immediately go to the fact that you're the one that's screwed up, um, you're going to, uh, it's not, it's going to be a distortion as to what's really going on. It's going to get in the way of a healthy resolution for you. So in some ways, it's like these cognitive distortions around accountability and culpability, responsibility. They're like um, a distorted lens on glasses, and it constantly shapes um, how you perceive the world, how you understand things that happen to you, that you're involved in. And basically, it puts you one down, and you're not able then to accurately understand you know, what is going on, who's responsible, what is your part of something, what is someone else's part of it. So this whole idea of accountability and it kind of, um, it can continue to distort your experience of, of situations that you come come up upon in, in your adult life. So there needs to be an awareness about, well, what are your cognitive distortions? You know, typically, you know, if you know dialectical behavior therapy, they talk about, you know, um, uh, absolutist thinking, all or nothing thinking, you know, black and white thinking. Uh, pretzel logic, you know, where you don't really, you're not making good, um, accurate understanding about why things happen and who's responsible and everything. And it stays with you. You're living your life through the prism of that distorted lenses that you're wearing on your head. So you need to kind of understand, well, what are my cognitive distortions? What are my, the, the attitudes that are getting in the way of seeing, you know, my, what I can do to kind of pursue my interests you need to be able to, and the book goes into a lot of them. Um, I, I, I don't have time to go into all of them, but the important thing is to kind of, when you notice that 
your reactions seem to conflict with what other people's reactions are. Um, that should be a sign, a signal that maybe, you know, some of your distortions are coming into play here and distorting the reality of what's happening or the validity of what's happening. Yeah, I want to jump to um, step 19. I, I've read all the steps, haven't done all the work yet, but because there's, a, it's really, I really recommend people uh, pick up a copy of the book or go to the website because there's uh, there's also activities you can do afterwards, writings and journals and things like that, and, and really soul searching. But step 19 uh, states that we should develop our own meaning about our abuse that releases us from the legacy of the past. I had a little trouble understanding <laughs> what does that mean and why is that so critical to Well, Basically, developing your own meaning about the abuse um, will allow you then to put to kind of put that experience on the shelf, so to speak, when you complete recovery. So the meaning, like every survivor says, why me? You know, why, you know, why did this happen to me? Eventually, you know, they're not thinking about this initially, but as they go through recovery, eventually they get to a place of they need to understand, you know, what does it mean that this happened to me? Is this, did this happen to me because of something bad about me? Or, you know, the enlightened sense or the enlightened meaning is that it's really not more complicated than the fact that you got born into a family that had significant dysfunction before you were ever born. And that this, the idea of the meaning is to kind of like say, you know, I think that I was, you know, unlucky or um, uh, I, I got born into a family that, um, you know, had their own problems and, and weren't able to, you know, change those issues. And it resulted in continuation of the abuse. You know, that's the whole intergenerational cycle of abuse. And that that kind of uh, absolves you of, of any culpability. Uh, that you somehow were responsible for the abuse. So you need to come to a sense of meaning, uh, almost in an existential sense, that some of us are lucky in terms of who, what families we were born to. Now, there's no, there's no perfect family or a few perfect families, but obviously when the abuse is going on in the family, it's a major failure of the family system. And so what, what about if there's, it's a church or a Boy Scout or just a neighbor and, and it wasn't your family? Well, I think that in that case, you got to realize that there are people out there that are going to do you harm. And, you know, you were unlucky uh, thinking going to a you know church, thinking that you are going to be treated with respect, you know, according to the Christian values and everything, Christian or, or Jewish values, whatever whatever values that your faith system um, presents, and then you were violated by somebody else, then it brings into the question of, you know, uh, were you able to tell somebody, did you feel enough entitlement, healthy entitlement to tell somebody that I'm being hurt, I'm being abused, and did those people take responsibility, i.e. the parents, in helping to protect you or respond to you and not blame the victim, but really do something about it. A lot of the anger toward mothers is that the information that their kids are getting abused, the parents knew, they just didn't take action. They didn't, they didn't really do the responsible thing. So in that case, when it's outside of the family, I think it's a little easier to say, you know, these people were 
were doing something to me that was not right and they violated the role that they were in whether they were a priest or a coach or a teacher or whatever so in some ways it's a little easier as i said it's a lot more complicated when it's within the family yeah there's just every time i'm like you take a pause i'm just like man there's so much information i'm just trying to like <laughs> distill everything back down um so it's it's really great to just hear a lot of these things and to be able to, you know, as someone who is, you know, relatively new to this healing process, always thinking like, oh, I think I'm doing okay. And then I hear something and I'm like, oh, I I actually have a lot more work that I need to do that uh, I just need to implement in my life as well. And I think this really leads us nicely into the final stage where you say, you know, it asks us put up, to put into action our new behaviors, skills, and attitudes that we learned in the first two stages. That's really hard task to like, you know, bring everything that you've been working on and healing it to be like, this is this new person that I'm going to present to the world. And obviously this is a very like, you know, but how difficult is this to do to really bring all those parts of yourself together one more time to present to the world as a functioning human being that is different from who you were in the past? Well, you know, I, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in writing Soul Survivors is that I wanted, if people read that book, they're going to get a pretty good overview of the child abuse field, uh, the effects that it has on people and how to recover from it. So you, you get a, a broad stroke, broad brush view of everything that's involved. And I wanted it to be that comprehensive because I wanted it to be a resource for people to say, okay, I got a lot of work to do. I've got to make some changes, got to deal with a lot of feelings and a lot of situations that occurred to me. But if I take it one step at a time, um, I know it's a, a bit of a cliche, take it one step at a time, but think of each day as an opportunity to push your recovery forward by taking little steps. Recovery is a fairly long sequence of taking little steps that represent, rather than doing what you did in the past that might have reflected a lack of awareness of your abuse. Now you take a right-hand turn and you make a change, you pivot to a healthier response to a given situation. So every day presents opportunities to take those little steps. If you make a commitment to recovery and you make a commitment to try to, you know, integrate some of this information and some of these suggestions every day, in every action you take, in every relationship that you have, in every challenge that you meet, and you give yourself um, a fair chance at making an incremental pivot to a healthier direction, a healthier trajectory. If you do that every day, it's just a matter of time before you head off in a direction that is different than if you didn't do this. And if you just continue to live your life unconsciously with all of the negative internalized effects that abuse causes, at some point you're going to realize I'm in a different place, you know? So you continue to kind of push through those, making those changes on a daily level. And it's just a matter of time before your, your life is going to get better incrementally with each incremental change that you make it. But over time, if you keep doing it, you're going to climb out of the morass, which is the long-term effects of childhood abuse. And you're going to become more and more functional. 
You're going to become more capable of loving uh, a partner, more capable of parent, good parenting. You know, one of the most exciting cases that I've had is with people that came from these horrible abusive backgrounds and they are doing a wonderful job of parenting. Parenting is a second chance where they can get it right. And there's so much pride in being able to stop the intergenerational cycle of abuse. And that becomes the hallmark of their self-esteem. You know, they didn't continue the abuse. They've given their children a good, healthy life. And there's a lot of pride for them. And that, for many of them, a lot of it has to do with their be becoming successful parents themselves. So um, the 21-step program is amazing. Is that all people need? Or are there other things like uh, MNDA, EMDR, uh, therapists, one-to-one? -one? I mean, what... Do you, do you think it's enough to do 21 steps or what is what should someone's healing journey really look like? Well, I think that I, I think that recovery from childhood abuse is a situation where more is better. If you if you uh, do self-help groups like ASCA and but you're able to afford, um, you know, professional help, it's going to speed up the process, especially if you pick the right therapist, a therapist that's informed in, in trauma issues. It's going to speed it up. You're going to get more support. More resources are going to facilitate a quicker recovery. So, you know, the 21 steps is just a template to try to organize the various things that you need to do to, to start your recovery journal uh, journey. But you need to bring those resources in. And, you know, it's a complex issue, and you know I wasn't able to cover all of the things that people uh, may need to address. But by being in psychotherapy, um, they afford themselves access to techniques such as EMDR. And you know when I uh, did the second edition of Soul Survivors in 2014, um, you know I wanted to include uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing (EMDR), which wasn't available back in 1988 when I wrote the book. Uh, but, you know, I've been using EMDR for over 30 years now, and I know that in terms of uh, a technique that helps process intense emotions, I know how effective this technique is. And so, you know, that that's something that only comes by being in individual therapy with a therapist that's been trained in EMDR. But there's other techniques as well, sensory motor processing techniques. Um, now you, you might know there's a book that's been on the bestseller list for years and years, uh, by Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score is, uh, is more of a, a neurobiological approach to trauma, but he's very much, Bessel, who I've taken workshops with, is very much into EMDR as an effective treatment um, for uh, adult survivors. So, you know, the more the better, uh, the more commitment you make, you know, the people that are successful uh, in my experience, working with survivors is the ones that, you know, made therapy a priority, a weekly priority, and they would take notes after every session. They would be involved in reading and informing themselves and be active participants in the, in the therapy process. So taking the initiative, you know, respecting, uh, you know, what you need and being able to, you know, uh, address those needs in, in the context of a therapeutic relationship um, is really is really key. So the more the better, it'll speed up the recovery process and being open to uh, new, you know, 
new issues that might emerge over time that are very much, you know, between the cracks, so to speak, of the 21 steps. There, there's a lot of detail that goes into this whole recovery process. All right. Dr. Gannon, we are coming up on our time. And so I, really quickly, I have a two-part question for you. Uh, we have a question in the chat. Can you quickly comment on Peter Walker's work in complex PTSD? And secondly, I think for a lot of us who are survivors, sometimes the feeling becomes, when will I be ever healed? Do I even have a chance of being healed? And I wanted to ask you if you have seen anybody that you had recently worked with or you had worked with in the past recently and just kind of give us this picture of hope and success that we can maybe visualize for ourselves of, hey, healing is possible. The way in which you can change a narrative is very possible. The chance at, you know, when you are be able to, when you are able to be a parent to your own child and to be able to rectify the wrongs of the past are possible. Uh, so really quickly, comments on Peter Walker's work in CPSD and just give us some hope as an ending note of, hey, this is possible. You can do this. It's hard, but it's worth it. Well, uh, yeah, the complex PTSD is uh, Judith Herman's work, uh, Trauma and Recovery, so people can can look at that. But it basically, it's a reflective of what I'm saying is that, you know, childhood abuse has an across-the-board impact on the functioning and, and the, the sub-concept uh, for the survivor. Um, the, uh, the other issue here is that, you know, what's most important is to make a commitment to do the work and you start with the obvious thing is to get more information and to you know continue to kind of work at it over and over and over again and just to kind of realize that if you take that uh make that decision you're going to kind of eventually um you know become a different person it's going to you'll evolve in in a way that is much more functional and allows for much more satisfaction so um it, does that answer the question or do you need something more specific from me? Uh, I think that'll work. <laughs> okay. Second part of the question, I think, was about... Yeah, what was that? Second part of the question is just, for, for many of us survivors, there's this sensation of, is this even possible? Can I Do I have a chance at being fully healed? And just asking you to kind of right. paint us this picture of hope of maybe a testimonial that you have of someone that you had worked with or just giving us some words of encouragement as we're going on this journey. Sure. If you read the book, uh, if you follow the, um, the you know, I followed six people, one of whom is Pete, the male survivor of sexual abuse. I'll tell you that it's interesting is that, you know, I worked with Pete um, back in the 80s. And um, recently, just in the last month, he's, he's contacted me and um, he's dealing with an issue. Uh, in his own uh, family of or his, his own family, his children, his children now have children, and an issue came up. And uh, what struck me in the last couple of weeks since I followed up with him is that this guy has had a tremendous life because of his recovery. He raised, you know, two beautiful kids, um, has a great relationship, successful, you know, uh, person in the field. Now is retired. Look, he's looking back on his life with tremendous satisfaction. So if you read the story of Pete in the book, know that it all turned out really, really well for him because of the effort. He is so committed to his recovery. And it was so heartwarming for me to kind of touch base with him again 
in the last couple of weeks. And even though we're dealing with a whole other issue, it really, the way he's dealing with this other issue just brings tears to my eyes because it's like, wow, you've really kind of done it. You've really kind of, you've really kind of recovered in a major way. And you're just had a very successful life. You've done great things. And now you're demonstrating it in a new challenge in his retirement years, dealing with his adult children. He's dealing with this issue in a beautiful way. So if you want some inspiration, all the people in the book, the six people in the book, have had varying levels of success in their recovery. Uh, I don't know how all of them, you know, it's been 30 years, how all of their lives turned out. But I do know, because of my contact with Pete, that he's had an incredible life. And just reading his story will lead to a sense of, wow, this is possible. I mean, believe me, I the reason why I specialize in this field is that psychotherapy with abuse survivors really works. It really, really works. You have to find the right therapist. They have to be trained. It helps if they know how to do EMDR. It helps if they have experience. But by all means, recovery is not only possible, it's likely. But it all depends on your commitment to yourself and to the recovery. Thanks so much. And then, you know, just to remind people, Pete was the one we talked about earlier coming out of the driveway where his mother thought she might be pregnant. I mean, that's that's an incredible story of hope and, and recovery. And I would just like to say, everybody, go to ASCASupport.org. You will find the 21 steps. You'll find ways that maybe you can, there's a lot of RAIN uh, administrators here. You could, you, could, you could find ways that you could be part of this and, and maybe form groups if they're not uh, groups locally, or you can find the groups that are local to you. Thank you, Dr. Gannon, uh, so much for joining our program today, sharing the results of your studies and your life's work. And, and we really so appreciate, uh, our, the survivors really appreciate everything that you're doing, everything that ASCA is doing, and, and all your volunteers, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Can I ask, can I mention one final thing? Um, sure. Uh, the, uh, the paperback version of the second edition is now available through lulu.com. Lulu is a print-on-demand publisher, and if you go to lulu.com, um, you'll find my book available, the, the paperback, and it includes all the, all the meeting materials for the ASCA program, in addition to uh, endorsements from survivors over the last 30 years, um, in addition to, you know, integration of some of the new treatment techniques that have come about since, uh, you know, the late 80s when I wrote the original book. So it's not available on Amazon because Amazon was going to make it like $55 or something. <laughs> So at Lulu Press, it's $24.95. We also have the second edition available as a Kindle book um, for $5.99. So if you don't have $25, you can go to you know, uh, Amazon and do the Kindle download for $5.99 uh, for the second edition. So I just want to let you know that this, this book, the, the, the new version of Soul Survivors, um, is a, uh, a large format book, um, has all the information in it. It's long, as you know, Craig, it's over 400 pages, but you know you can use it as a, as a resource book. Uh, you don't have to read it through. People tend to, they cycle, you know, you mentioned before about, you know, do you have, do you have to do all these steps in, in sequence? No, people cycle through them, they spiral through them. Uh, you know, stage by stage. So they go uh, within the seven steps within uh, within each stage in their own particular way, which is fine. Customize it for whatever works for you. 
And Dr. Daniel, again, I just want to say thank you so much. There have been so many little notes that I've put onto the side that I'm like, wow, this is going to be a lot of journaling for me. Dr. Gannon, I can't thank you enough. Uh, this was incredible. And, and thank you all survivors. Uh, thank you out there. It's your courage that gives us strength. Thank you. Thank you. We'd like to thank you for joining us today for this important discussion. For more information about this program and other programs from the Men of Voices Beyond Assault, please go to our website at www.voicesbeyondassault.org. If you found this podcast helpful, and we hope you did, please let us know by liking it below. And to all of you survivors out there, remember, you are not alone. And together, we heal. Thank you. Say